The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. On courtly love, which I will touch on a little bit today, though not extensively, um, see the chapter in Kolish, chapter 13 on courtly love. As I've mentioned a number of times, we've got to remember that theologians don't work in a theological vacuum, they work in a broader culture. Uh, And as Bernard talks about love in a theological context, so love is being talked about all over Western Europe in a literary context, uh, in the context of courtly love. the chapter in Kolish is very good. I would suggest as well, for those of you who want to see a good sort of Monty Python-esque take-off of courtly love, um, read The Miller's Tale by Geoffrey Chaucer. don't know if you've ever come across that. But The Miller's Tale is, I, I did it in sixth form, and it's just the kind of book that you dream of doing at school. It's full of rude words and rude happenings and events, and the teacher kind of allows you to study this stuff and approves of it. Um, it's always very interesting, I found, doing ancient Greek at Cambridge that... Uh, you'd study plays by Aristophanes that were full of the kind of stuff that people would certainly have been campaigning to have banned on the television. And you'd got these elderly um, ladies teaching you this stuff. But because it was written in Greek uh, 2,000, 2,500 years ago, it was kind of respectable because it was difficult to understand. Um, were it on the telly, they would have been chaining themselves to railing somewhere. Um, general background to the Cistercians. See the chapter in uh, Kolish, chapter 16. Um, Monastic learning, I still think the best, the best way of getting into monastic learning, getting a feel for monasticism in the Middle Ages, is Jean Leclerc's book, first published in 1961, but I think still a very, very good introduction to monastic culture in the Middle Ages. Leclerc's book, The Love of Learning and the Desire for God, I think it's out of print, I got mine second hand some years ago. But well worth consulting if you want to understand something of the difference, if you like, between monastic culture and school culture in the Middle Ages. On Bernard himself, uh, I've recommended the book by Gilson. Gilson is an extremely influential Catholic thinker of the 20th century, wrote a whole host of books upon different medieval philosophers and theologians. Uh, so Gilson is important in his own right as an influential Catholic thinker within the church. He's also very good as an expounder of other people's thinking. Uh, although he has his own distinctive take, uh, anything by Gilson on the Middle Ages is worth looking at. I've also recommended uh, G.R. Evans's book, Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, I recommend this, as I say on the list, without having seen the book. Uh, It is part of that series, The Great Medieval Thinkers, which I'm pretty much recommending all the volumes of throughout this course. It was out of the library when I went to check it, so well done to whoever of you is ahead of the game on Bernard of Clairvaux. I haven't read the book, but I'm assuming from my experience of G.R. Evans elsewhere and my experience of this series that it's well worth consulting. So if it's a load of nonsense, don't come back to me and say, you told me it was good and it's rubbish. Um, I'm just working on, uh, I'm playing a sort of percentage game, if you like, on this. I think it's almost certainly worth consulting. And finally, at a more advanced level, uh, Bernard in the context of monastic culture, Pranger or Pranger, I'm not sure if he's French, um, his book, 
Bernard of Clairvaux in the Shape of Monastic Thoughts, Broken Dreams, published by Brill. It is in the library, though it's sitting on my desk at the moment. Um, the computer will tell you it's on the shelves because I haven't checked it out. Now I have an office in the library, just nick this stuff and take it straight into my office. Um, but I'll put it on the, put back on the shelves things. Uh, yeah, I'm the guy that you're always getting frustrated with. <laughs> right. We used to have this strategy when I was at college, oh, perhaps I shouldn't suggest it to you, but you probably do it already, of uh, when you couldn't take books out of the library, nearly moving them to a different shelf so that nobody else would ever be able to find them, but you knew exactly where they were for when you needed to refer to them. But that's merely describing what I did. It's not recommending a practice for you at Westminster. Right, I want to look today at Bernard of Clairvaux and his contemporaries. There are two streams of medieval theology that I want to talk about. There is what we call the school stream, from which we get the adjective scholastic. When we say scholastic, put from your mind any pejorative ideas. Uh, scholastic simply means theology is pursued in the schools. That's all it means. The only thing that holds all of the scholastic theologians together is that they taught theology in the schools, in the universities. <coughs> Be the same if you like. When I say scholastic, think academic. Let's say scholastic theology, we say academic theology. It doesn't really tell you anything about the content of the theology. It tells you merely about where it took place, but probably gives you some idea of how it took place as well. So, scholastic theology and monastic theology. Scholastic theology focused upon dialectic. Principles of argument. The idea was, in a scholastic setting, a describe this to a class earlier in the week. I would come in this morning and I would say, right, today we're going to talk about whether God exists or not. And I would point to one of you and I would say, stand up and give me five reasons why God exists. You would stand up and give me five reasons why God exists. Then I would point to another of you and I'd say, okay, give me one reason based upon an authority of why God does not exist. So you would stand up and you'd give me a line from the scriptures or a line from the church fathers or some piece of common sense wisdom demonstrating that God doesn't exist. Then I, as the magister, as the teacher, would resolve the argument. I put forward the case. I said, well, actually, God does exist. He exists for the following reasons. Uh, the first person was correct in what they said. Uh, the second person, well, they've actually misinterpreted that line in the scriptures or that piece of authority, and I explained where they'd gone wrong. So, scholastic theology, rooted in dialectic, in procedures of argument, the idea was to unpack the intellectual content of the Christian faith and relate it to wider cultural and intellectual and philosophical questions. Monastic theology, however, focused on contemplatio, contemplation. If scholastic theology tended to be, in the strict sense of the word, a theoretical discipline, monastic theology tended to be ethical discipline. Focused, if you like, upon your contemplation of God, upon your experience of God. It was less abstract in that it was more directly concerned with the experience of God. Now, in setting up the question like that, I'm drawing stark boundaries, demarcation, where in reality the boundaries were somewhat more blurred. Scholastic theologians were also interested in contemplation. If you read Thomas Aquinas, look at his prayers, you'll find a scholastic theologian interested in unpacking the intellectual content of the faith, but also interested in contemplation, prayer life, experience of God. 
there's a strongly mystical dimension to Aquinas. I've probably told you the anecdote that Aquinas' Summa Theologia is left unfinished. Why is it left unfinished? Because he has this incredible mystical experience at the altar. Perhaps be a few weeks before he dies. After this experience, he lays down his pen and refuses to write anymore. So in scholastic theologians, one finds elements of contemplation, one finds an interest in Christian experience. In monastic theologians, on the other hand, one finds an interest in dialectic. Anselm is a good example. There you have a fusion of contemplation and dialectic. What's the monologue on? It's a meditation upon the essence of God. It combines both meditative, contemplative aspects and theological, metaphysical aspects. So I've set up two broad schools here, but they are not as strictly bounded as my initial description might have suggested. What I'm talking about here is, if you like, emphatic differences, differences in emphases between the two. In the monastic context, one will find an emphasis upon experience. In the scholastic context, one will find an emphasis upon dialectic, but neither to the exclusion of the other, talking about question of emphasis. Both of them, I think, are arguably legacies of the great Augustine. He is the dominant intellectual and cultural influence in theological circles throughout the Middle Ages. And both of these streams of theology, both of these ways of approaching theology, find uh, precedent in Augustine. Obviously, in his anti-Pelagian writings on predestination, in his writings on the city of God, in his writings on the Trinity, one finds massive precedent for later, what might call speculative theology. Carefully worked out theological argumentation, exploring the great objective dogmas of the faith. It's all there in Augustine. But one also, of course, has a profoundly experiential dimension of Augustine as well. Think of the confessions. Confessions, where does it come from in the, in the ancient world? Goodness only knows, it's unique. A book that sets out to analyze a man's psychology in such depth, unique in the ancient world. This guy from North Africa seems to almost come from nowhere on the psychological front and writes this book, describes his path to conversion and deals with the inner psychology of a human being in a way that had never been done before and perhaps wasn't to be done again for a thousand years. Throughout the Confessions, you get this reflection upon the Christian experience of God. Much of the Confessions is written in the form of a prayer to God. Augustine is talking to God about his life and about his experience. And I know, I said in my early church class, the one book really you ought to read, the one primary source you ought to read before the class is over, is Augustine's Confessions. I think that's the case for all Christians everywhere. It's one of the ten books, if you like, that you must read. It takes you from small village in North Africa to the corridors of power in Rome. It's a wonderful story and it's an amazing analysis of an individual's experience of God. So, at the background of the two schools of thought, you have Augustine and the impact both of his dogmatic works and of his confessions. I have a comment here from Leclerc's book that captures monastic culture nicely. Monastic knowledge, he says, is determined by the end of monastic life, the search for God. Now, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of monasticism. If I was, I would be a Protestant. 
But I do want to, if you like, if we can just for the sake of argument today for the next hour and a half, suspend uh, natural Protestant instincts about monasticism just to go and look at what these guys did and what they wrote in order to see if there's anything there that is helpful for us today. And I want to suggest, certainly when we come to Bernard, what you have in Bernard is somebody who builds on Augustine's insights into sin and the nature of humanity. And does so in a way that is profoundly contemporary. I was struck as I was rereading Bernard this week how some of his stuff in his sermons you could whip out and you could preach this Sunday and he would touch America just where it is at the moment, it would touch Britain just where it is at the moment. So, monasticism. Let's leave behind the sort of celibacy and all this sort of baggage and focus on the idea of monasticism, a search for God. I think that will allow us a somewhat more sympathetic reading. Now, there were two models of monasticism that developed in the ancient church formed around two different visions of the Christian life. The one, what I call like the, the anchorite approach. The anchorites were these, um, well, I have to say, way out individuals. I can't think of a polite way of putting it. These were the guys who would remove themselves from civilization, not remove themselves so far that people couldn't come and bring them food, of course, <laughs> but they would remove themselves a decent distance from a community and then do all kinds of um, self-mutilatory things. Bury themselves alive, hold themselves up in a cave. Uh, Simon Stylites, of course, very famously, stands on the top of poles of varying degrees of height for 40 years or so. The Anchorite model of the Christian life, which feeds through into a certain kind of monasticism, is of the Christian life as an individual struggle against the forces of evil. If you remember Athanasius' life of Antony, when Athanasius says people would go up to the cave where he walled himself up, and they would hear him screaming as he fought physically with the devil and the demons that were down there trying to get it. The whole idea of the life of Antony and the monasticism that comes from the life of a man like Antony is that the Christian life as the individual superhero, if you like, struggling against demons and devils. Profoundly individual understanding of the Christian life. That's the anchoritic approach. The second approach is what I call the community approach. And this is the one that will win out in Western Europe. The focus upon monasticism as, if you like, the end times breaking into the present the monastic community as a little anticipation here on earth of the great communal life of Christians there in heaven. And one of the key forces behind this, of course, is our old friend St. Augustine. If the Anchorites focused on asceticism and on mortification because they understood the Christian life as the individual fighting against demons and against sin and against temptation, Augustine focused upon the monastic community as a realization of heaven here upon earth. I have a quotation from Robert Marcus describing Augustine's influence in this area. Augustine shifted, Marcus says, Augustine shifted much of the stress previously laid on asceticism towards the values of communal living and the virtues which foster it. With the rule of St. Augustine, Western monasticism embarks on a road which leads to Benedict. So in Augustine you get a move away from monasticism as lots of little individuals fighting for themselves to a community. A 
community searching after God, a community attempting to realize in some small way here on earth the great communal life there in heaven. And by the 11th and 12th century, which is what we're interested in today, the community pattern is well established, both in the East and in the West. The West is marked off from the East in the fact that in the West there is one dominant rule that's ruled with a capital R. There is one dominant pattern. Western monasticism is essentially a variety of variations on one particular theme. And that particular theme is set by the rule of St. Benedict. Rule of St. Benedict, whose dates are around about 480 to around about 550. Those of you interested in looking at the rule of St. Benedict, if you go to the webpage of this course and look at under external links, you'll find a link to a webpage where the rule of St. Benedict is available. You'll also find a link there to a medieval source book with a whole lot of other medieval stuff to look at as well. So go to the webpage, you'll find the rule of St. Benedict reproduced for you there. I'm sorry, why Anchorite? Sorry? Where they get the name Anchorite? Well, <clears throat> the actual derivation of the word Anchorite, nobody's quite sure where it comes from. I've been asked that question almost every year I've taught the course and I've looked it up and each year there are various derivations of the word. Um, I think it can mean, some people say landless, the word meaning landless. Um, but the derivation of the word, if you like, isn't important. It just refers to those um, holy men, those ascetic superheroes who took themselves away from society and uh, subjected their bodies to physical punishment in order to combat sin and temptation. The rule of St. Benedict, then, <clears throat> is the one that shapes monasticism in the West. The essence of the rule of St. Benedict was a communal life of shared property. Individuals don't own property. The abbey owns property. The man who runs the abbey is an abbot, elected by his fellows. Now, having been elected, is then very authoritarian. The man is elected, and then he calls all the shots. And the daily routine is shaped around the opus dei. <clears throat> The divine office establishes time for daily prayer. So your day is spent praying and working. So all of Western monasticism is to an extent variations on the one rule of St. Benedict. Those of you interested in the details of the Opus Dei, go to the webpage. Look at the rule there. I would have photocopied it for you, but it's 20, 30 pages long, something like that. It would have been too much to have copied and handed out today. Now we come to Bernard, Bernard's order. The Cistercians, founded in 1098 by Robert of Molen. Molen. In reaction to the monastery at Cluny, Cluny, which was seen as having gone somewhat liberal, effectively, on the rule of St. Benedict. You see, nothing ever changes. These days, we just found new seminaries. In those days, they found a new monastic foundations. In competition to the uh, monastery at Cluny, Robert of Molen founds the Cistercian Order as an attempt to get back to the more rigorous, literal application of the rule of St. Benedict. So the Cistercians emerge in the 11th century, the end of the 11th century, really as a reforming order, trying to reform monasticism by going back to what the rule of St. Benedict was <coughs> originally. <coughs> meant to be. <clears throat> they were, I've got here, the Cistercians were a more rigidly Benedictine, puritanical movement. Ironically, 
for a number of reasons, the Cistercians ended up undermining the idea, the old Benedictine ideal. One of the reasons was that they were phenomenally successful. They started to found monasteries left, right, and center. Each monastery has its own abbot, but what happens is the abbots start meeting together to discuss general business of the monasteries that are all linked together. You have the founding of a religious order, not simply a monastery, but you end up with a completely new Western European movement as the abbots meet to discuss business and to discuss uniform policy. The Cistercians become more of a religious order than anything Western Europe had yet seen. Secondly, as part of their drive for austerity, the Cistercians tended to plant their monasteries on the frontiers. But this was just at a point where agriculture is being revolutionised, bumper harvests are coming in, the Cistercians are planting their monasteries on virgin soil. The Cistercian monasteries rapidly become extremely wealthy and models of efficient agricultural management to the extent that very soon Manual labour is contracted out to local serfs or lay brothers, leaving your high-flying Cistercian monks free to pursue contemplation on a more full-time basis. So the Cistercians, having set out as an attempt to uh, revitalise the rule of St. Benedict, undermine it really by becoming too successful. Translating into modern lingo, they have campuses all over Western Europe. Though presumably they had separate faculties in each of these campuses and they didn't you know, fly the same monks left, right and centre to contemplate at various points across the Western European scene. So, the Cistercians then, successful order, rapidly emerging as the powerhouse of the 11th and 12th century. The monks, because of their success, freed up to reflect upon religious experience in a way perhaps previously unknown. I've got another nice quotation from Leclerc here. Altogether, the great difference between the theology of the schools and that of the monasteries resides in the importance which the latter accord the experience of union with God. This experience in the cloister is both the principle and the aim of the quest. It could be said of St. Bernard that his watchword was not credo ut intelligam, or ut intelligam, I believe, in order to understand, but credo ut experiar. I believe in order to experience. And this difference between the kind of culture that you were getting within a Cistercian monastic context and the wider educational context was clearly perceived by contemporaries. I've got a couple of quotations I want to read here from Leclerc, from contemporary eyewitnesses, what was going on in, if you like, in the cloister as opposed to the schools. This is from a guy called Philip of Harvenkt. In the cloister, there is hardly any room for vanity. Sanctity alone is sought for. There, day and night, the just man submits to the divine will, devotes himself to hymns, prayer, silence, tears and reading. There, I say, the sincerity for a purified life cleanses the intelligence, which then makes it possible to acquire knowledge more easily and efficaciously. In your eyes, no knowledge is commendable which has not been forged in the tumult of the secular schools, as if it were a certainty that among those who have been receiving instruction in them for a long time, there could be found no error or heresy. You are indignant because I mentioned that you had learned sacred letters in a cloister, as if in doing so I had insulted you. You consider what you have learned in the school of Leon, in the famous lecture hall of, Ma hall of Master Ansel, does you great honour. And yet, blessed is he, not he who has heard Master Ansel, not he who went off to pursue knowledge in Leon or Paris, but blessed it is written, 
is he whom you instruct, Lord, he to whom you teach your law. And again it is said, I shall listen to what the Lord my God says within me. I would that it had pleased God for me to have been taught sacred letters in a cloister from childhood, so that henceforth I might have consecrated my whole life to sacred studies. Raised from childhood in the house of God in imitation of Samuel, I would have burned with the desire to know like a Daniel. To have been educated from childhood in the school of the religious life seemed to me an honour. Therefore I had no intention of offending you when praising your knowledge I mentioned the cloister and not the secular schools. And then another quote from a guy called Peter Comestor. There are some who do more praying than reading. They are the cloister dwellers. There are others who spend all their time reading and rarely pray. They are the schoolmen. So, nothing ever changes. So then, the 12th century was a time when monastic thought was on the rise because the monasteries themselves were becoming powerful. And it reaches its apex in the person of Bernard. And in Bernard's writings, I think we, have, we see a happy confluence of certain general cultural concerns, theological concerns, if you like, scholastic concerns, but above all, the experiential concerns um, that derive from his status as a monastic person. I'll give you his life in brief before we go on to look at his writings. <clears throat> He's born in 1090 shortly before the founding of the Cistercians in Burgundy. Son of a minor noble. In 1111, 1112, he becomes a monk in Clairvaux. In his lifetime, he was to be the most successful monastery planter that the Cistercians produced. 68 to found 68 monastic houses in his career. Phenomenal record. And remember, this is a time, of course, where transport and communication is difficult. Very, very difficult. So he founded 68 monasteries. He got a church planter and founded 68 successful churches. Even today, with communication, etc., etc., you'd regard that as pretty impressive life's work. To do it in the 12th century, really quite remarkable. 68 monasteries founded by Bernard of Clairvaux. In 1115, he is sent... <coughs> Sorry, I didn't go to the monastery of Clairvaux. Monastery of Cito, the first of the Cistercian monasteries. Sorry. In 1115, he goes to found the monastery in Clairvaux. At the age of only 25, he is entrusted with founding a monastery. Like Anselm before him, clearly dealing here with somebody who very quickly established themselves as so brilliant, they're more brilliant than their teacher. We will come across another character like that a little bit later on, for whom it was a little bit of a mistake to become more brilliant than his teacher. There's a lesson for you there somewhere. <laughs> Peter Abelard. We'll touch on him a little bit later on. 1115, however, Bernard is already obviously rising rapidly in the ranks of Cistercianism because he's the man uh, they've chosen to found a monastery at Clairvaux. <clears throat> 1124, he writes a treatise on the steps of humility and pride which is reproduced for you in the selected writings that the Classics of Western Spirituality volume. Very, very uh, important book for getting a basic handle on where Bernard is coming from. He has more to say in the book about pride than he does about humility. I mean, it's very, very interesting, particularly uh, for one of my own academic interests is the continuities between the Middle Ages 
and later reformed thinking. And one of the ways that I map that out is things like metaphysics, uh, anti-Pelagianism, Trinitarianism. And I think one can trace the antecedents of later reformed theology quite easily and quite clearly in the Middle Ages. But there's another aspect to reformed theology which you can also trace back into the Middle Ages, and that is the emphasis upon uh, sin, the mortification of sin, the experience of sin, overcoming sin. The reason for the continuity, of course, is, I think, our old friend Augustine. What you see is not only in the Middle Ages continuation of Augustine's Trinitarian and anti-Pelagian concerns, you also see the continuation, as I said, of his concerns for Christian experience and sin. Bernard of Clairvaux writes at great length upon the nature of sin, the deceptive and the self-defeating nature of sin. I'll give you some quotations later on to try to bring that out. But here in the steps of humility and pride, if you read that, there are times when you could be reading the 17th century period. And one of the reasons why Bernard of Clairvaux is one of the medievals that is approved of, even by the reformers. The reformers, although they use a lot of medieval stuff, generally speaking, don't speak approvingly of medieval guys. One of the reasons, I think, is because he is so good on the psychology and the nature of sin. Interestingly enough, the reformers kind of rewrite history, and that for reformers often, Bernard is the last of the fathers, rather than the medieval schoolman. Can't quite bring themselves to say that the medieval guy has got some good ideas, so he's often referred to as the last of the fathers. Locating back into the patristic era, it's not such a problem. <laughs> it's on the steps of humility and pride. 1127, 1128, another book, Conduct and Duties of Bishops. I mention this simply in passing because it is produced on request, on the request of the Archbishop of Seine. Simply indicating the importance which Bernard is gaining in the wider church community. He's not simply of relevance to the Cistercian order. This is a man that the church at large will call upon for advice. <clears throat> this word is always on this. It must be one of the Old Testament guys wrote on the wrong side or something, being deliberately awkward. Um, that word is always there, isn't it? Whenever I lecture in this room, that word appears at some point on the plastic. <clears throat> 1128, Council of Troyes. Council of Troyes. Set up by the church to regulate the Knights Templar. Those of you who are fans of conspiracy theories, no conspiracy theory is worth its salt without the Knights Templar putting in an appearance at some point. You know the story, this sort of secret brotherhood of um, militant monks that's still meant to be out there subverting the New World Order or whatever it is. Um, the Knights Templar, founded by a cousin of Bernard's, Hugh of Payne, set up in Jerusalem as a means of protecting pilgrims. It was a monastic order, but one of the, a number of military monastic orders. These were, um, yeah, hard, hard people. I thought of the Knights Temple actually last week, uh, just as an aside, I went to um, a hockey game with Mike Kelly on Friday night. And at some point, like five or six punch-ups came on simultaneously. I also it was interesting in the psychology of sin, actually, because you know, they, they then had this sort of announcements about the different penalties, you know, somebody had half killed somebody else for two minutes in the sink or something. And there was one guy who committed so many crimes, it took about 30 seconds to list them all, and he got 11 minutes in the sink bin. Well, a murder gets you six minutes, so you can imagine how, how bad this was. And as they announced this, the crowd roared, he's our man. And I thought, we should be sitting here saying, this is 
you know, if this man had done this outside, he'd be in prison for five years. <laughs> no, because he's on an ice hockey rink, he's kind of, he's our hero. And although we lost 5-1 and we were soundly thrashed, we'd won all the fights, which kind of you know, <laughs> made us all feel better as we went home, I'm sure. So, the Knights Templar, the ice hockey players of their day and generation, hard men. Bernard was faced with having to justify them, really, justified them on the basis that any violence that they were going to indulge in would be done out of the highest motives. And of course the other problem was, hey, these guys are monks. It's seeking God, it's contemplation these people are meant to be engaged in, not butchering anybody who gets in their way. Which Bernard sort of weakly gets around by saying, well, yeah, they're in Jerusalem, so any time you've got, you know, not butchering people or whatever, they're spending contemplating on the nativity or the crucifixion or something, be aware that you're in the Holy Land and use it as a basis for contemplation. But the church needs the Knights Templar. It needs bodyguards for its pilgrims in Jerusalem. So the Knights Templar are established. Next big event in his life, the death of Honorius II. The Pope dies in 1130. And then... For well, the next eight years, there is a split decision about who the next pope is to be. Is it to be Innocent II? Or is it to be a chap called Anacletus? Bernard spends the next seven or eight years going around France, <coughs> rallying support for Innocent II. Again, an indication of how important this man is to the church politics of his day. He does, you know, he's continually on the move in France, rallying support uh, for the pope as opposed to the anti-pope. And in 1138, the schism is finally resolved. Innocent II becomes Pope. And Bernard, of course, has been massively enhanced in terms of his political and ecclesiastical prestige. A couple more quick events. 1135 begins work on his master commentary, The Song of Songs. I recommend you to read, if you can, the selection of sermons from The Song of Songs in Bernard's selected writings. He is the man who, it's an allegorical reading, allegorical reading of the Song of Songs, but an amazing use, if you like, of the sensual language of the Song of Songs to describe the incarnation, the relationship between Christ and the church, between God and humanity. Considering that Bernard is a monk, he has an extremely sensual vocabulary way of expressing himself. Very, very interesting sermons. Very, very influential. Very, very influential in later European reflection upon the Song of Songs. 1140, he intervenes in a dispute between William of Saint-Thierry and the notorious Peter Abelard, who we'll touch upon a little bit later on. We'll talk about this a little bit later on. And then in 1146 to 1148, the most notorious aspect of his career, he preaches the Second Crusade. The Second Crusade starts as a plan between the Pope and the King of France. But Bernard's vision for the Second Crusade is that it should be a pan-Christian, <coughs> pan-European venture involving East and West in a great kind of ecumenical invasion of the Holy Land. And if there's one thing, of course, that history holds Bernard guilty at its bar for it is preaching the Second Crusade. The whole thing was a total disaster. Rivalries broke out between <coughs> different kings and uh, it was a complete damn squib at the end of the day and Bernard took most of the flack for its failure. 
as I say, 11.46 to 11.48, Bernard preaching the Second Crusade. And it's always, I always find it remarkable that the way that um, certain individuals who can, can speak so eloquently and so beautifully about God in some context can be so down on bloodthirsty, even by the standards of their day. You know, we've always got to be sensitive and not self-righteous when we look at history. We've got to be aware that you know, some of these people may look at us and say, well, you, know, you guys, you have more than enough to eat, and yet you let all these children starve in Africa or something like that. But we ourselves are not so righteous. I think we must be aware of, that we must not be self-righteous when we look back and criticize the positive bloodthirstiness of these people. Then they might look at us and say, well, you know, you're not bringing acts into these children's heads, but you're as good as doing that in the way that you render economics, or the way you know, that you over-consume. So you've got to be aware of being self-righteous. But even then, when you look at the standards of the day, some of these guys come out quite badly. There are times when Bernard does that. My particular bet, as many of you will know, he's nothing to do with medieval church, but I really don't like him. So I'll mention him now in this kind of the Truman Theological Hall of Shame is R.L. Dabney. Really don't like him now. He's the kind of, even worse than Bernard of Clairvaux, but in the 19th century. So we have this thing at home we call the fridge of fame and the fridge of shame for my kids and the fridge of fame is all the good people we like and the fridge of shame is where we put pictures of all the people we don't and the picture of R.L. Dabney he'd certainly be on the fridge of shame in the Truman House uh, 11.48 onwards devotes himself to combating the theology of Gilbert of Poitiers in a five volume work of consideration massive exploration of Christian theology and then in 1153, he dies. The preeminent monastic leader, the preeminent churchman of his day. And as I'm going to argue in the second half of this class, I think, one of the preeminent thinkers on the psychology of sin that the church has ever produced. Although we've sort of got another five minutes to go before I want to break this class, it's really good point in plowing on there because there's a whole big section ahead. Well, I want to think a little bit about Bernard's uh, theology now. Central to the medieval idea of experience of God is love and union with Christ. I call the theology of love and union in my lecture notes. Love is central to medieval theology. Why is that? Well, self-evident level, it's central to New Testament texts. There's a lot said about love in the New Testament. Secondly, it is central to the theology of St. Augustine. Augustine is the man who if you like, if Luther places faith at the centre of Christianity, Augustine places love at the centre. The love of God and the love of men and women for God. Love is an integral part of the divine image of God in humanity. As we shall see, it's the perversion and the misdirection of love that is the essence of sin for uh, St. Augustine. Love is also a central theme of literature in the 11th century. Got a little quote from Kolisch here. One of the most striking developments in medieval literature beginning in the late 11th century and extending to the early 13th is vernacular literature dealing with love, especially courtly love linked to the chivalric code of manners. So you get your great tales of King Arthur emerging at this point, uh, laying out the great love story between Arthur and Guinevere and the elaborate way in which that love develops. And if you look at Kolisch's book, you'll have various um, classics of courtly love mentioned there. And I also referred you, as I said, at the start of the class to the Miller's Tale for a vicious send-up of the genre of courtly love literature by a medieval English writer. So Bernard, in writing about love, I want to focus really on the Augustinian aspects of his writings here, but we must remember 
that Bernard, as he writes upon love, is doing what a whole variety of different literary figures are doing at this point in the Middle Ages, and that's writing and reflecting upon the nature of love. Human love, divine love. <clears throat> the great major presentation of love in Bernard's writings is on loving God. They diligendo Dei. On loving God, because on the necessity of loving God. On loving God. Written for a character called Imeric, who was a cardinal deacon to the Church of Rome. And in this tract, 40, 40 or 50 pages long, Bernard develops his understanding of love, how love relates to sin, how love relates to salvation. And again, it's, it's in the selected writings. It's well worth reading and reflecting. He starts off with a prolegomenal section. Although he's a contemplative, although he's monastic, theology has to be coherent to make sense for him. So he lays out, to begin with, the foundations of what he's later going to develop. God, he said, is to be loved for his own sake. Use the Greek theta for God there. God to be loved for God's sake. This is the end of side one. Please flip the tape at this point. The divine love is true love, for it is the love of one who wants nothing for himself. God's love, the love of God, is self-sufficient. Needs requires no other. God himself should be loved for his own sake. Love is to be unselfish, outgoing, self-giving. This is to be picked up and developed in a somewhat radical way by a guy like Peter Abelard, who used to use God's love as an idea for arguing that creation becomes necessary. It is necessary for a loving God to create something outside of himself. There are hints about that in Aquinas. Aquinas has tendencies of perhaps moving in that direction. <clears throat> but love is to be selfless, outgoing, self-giving. God is also the basis for loving God. The cause of loving God, says Bernard, is God himself. The way to love him is without measure. God is to be loved because he's God and he's to be loved infinitely. God is infinite and therefore he requires us to love him in an infinite way. Our love for God, if you like, is to mirror God's love for God. It is to be infinite, unconditional, self-giving. Throughout Bernard's writings, you have the underlying idea that the human capacity to love, it is as we love, if you like, that you find much of the image of God in humanity. We image God in that God loves and we love. The perversion of that image, of course, is that our love is often misdirected, twisted, misdirected but the image of God can be found in our capacity to love as they like Augustine like on my notes here Bernard sees the essence of sin as lying not in the destruction of love but in the perverted misdirection of it and it's here I think it's this insight that Bernard picks up from Augustine that allows him such profound and time, I think in many ways, timeless insights into the nature and impact of sin upon humanity. Having said that, Bernard also links his understanding of God's love to Christ. One of the ways in which I think uh, evangelical theology, well, there are a number of ways the evangelical theology has dropped, if you like, the historic Christian ball. One of the ways, I think, is um, the sidelining in many ways of the Incarnation. The other one is a failure to be fully Trinitarian. <clears throat> For Bernard, God's love 
is preeminently revealed in the cross of Christ. And here we can almost see, I think, anticipations of things that Luther is going to say in a couple of hundred years' time. The incarnation, and particularly the cross of Christ, are the supreme revelation, the supreme modelling of divine love for us. Bernard says, Shorter Writings 183, O wretched slaves of Mammon, you cannot simultaneously glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and hope for a treasury of money or chase after gold and taste how sweet the Lord is. You cannot glory in the cross of Christ and love money. Why not? Because the cross of Christ itself models a form of love which exactly contradicts love of money. It is impossible to claim to glory in the cross of Christ and to love money. It could have been written by Luther, very, very close to things Luther will say about the cross of Christ. But it is a sheer contradiction, he says, to claim to love the cross of Christ and to glory in mammon and materialism. And I often play this, I say, I'm a church historian, I don't do systematic theology, I don't tell you how much of this stuff is relevant for today, that's for you to work out. I want to say, when you switch on to Channel 8, I think all of this stuff is very, very appropriate for people on Channel 8 who seem to sell you this idea that Christianity equals worldly prosperity. Bernard would say to them, no. It is a nonsense to have the cross of Christ at the back of your TV program and then to preach a gospel of prosperity because the cross is itself the supreme manifestation of the way God loves. It involves self-emptying. It involves pain. It involves giving yourself unconditionally and wholeheartedly to another and expecting nothing in return. It is a direct contradiction of materialism, love of money, love of mammon. <clears throat> dare I say it probably the application of that is somewhat wider in the western world than merely channel 8 it creates a demand in Bernard's thinking for meditating upon God's self-giving in Christ Bernard is one of the masters in the middle ages of pioneering a meditative reflection upon the work of Christ he sets up if you like uh, a stream of piety or spirituality that focuses upon the incarnation and the actions of Christ. In Anselm, we have a good theological rationale for why God became human. Bernard, if you like, broadens that picture considerably, welding together piety, meditation, and activism by pointing to Christ as the object of our meditation and an example in some ways to be followed. Obviously, Christ is unique for Bernard. He is the word incarnate. He is not to be followed exactly because Christ has a unique office and does unique things. But some of the principles that Christ's incarnate life reveals, love to your neighbour, love to the unloved, love to the unlovely, these principles reveal something about the essence of God and reveal something about what the restoration of the image in us should look like. And I think what Bernard represents here is the start of a tradition that culminates again in somebody like Martin Luther, who you find in Thomas Kempis on the imitation of Christ, a devotion to the humanity of Christ that leads to deep meditation upon narrative passages of scripture. Just as a little sight aside here, it doesn't quite fit into the flow of my argument, but I've noted it in my notes. There is also a little tension in Bernard. Uh, listen to this quotation. God is not loved without reward even though he should be loved without thought of reward. It does actually fit. I now realise, remember why I put it in. That's on page 187 in the shorter writings. It fits because it points to how careful a psychologist Bernard is of the Christian life. 
he appreciates that love of God should be for God's sake. And as you'll say in a later treatise, love of humanity should also be for God's sake. But of course there is reward there as well. Heaven stands reward. But the reward is not to be a motivation. Bernard, as a pastor, as a man who's leading a community of monks, is aware of the temptations and the tensions in monastic life. I've got here now, Bernard, because of this, he sees the tragic absurdity in the perversion of humanity's love. And I want to read now a passage from 188, pages 188 to 189, which as I was reading it, struck me as incredibly contemporary. Listen to this. It is always, it's quite an extended quotation, so you have to bear with me. Um, it is always natural for every rational being to desire what it sees to be finer and to direct its energies towards it. That's good scholasticism. Every being de- desires to better itself, if you like. It's rational. It is never satisfied with anything which lacks what it judges it should have. For example, a man who has a beautiful wife looks at a lovelier woman with a discontented eye or mind. He who is dressed in fine clothes wants better. He who is very rich envies a richer man. Today, you see many men who already have great wealth and possessions still labouring day by day to add one field to another and to extend their boundaries with greed which knows no bounds. And you see those who have houses worthy of a king and vast palaces, nevertheless adding house to house every day and building with a restless love of novelty, knocking down what they build, altering rectangles to rounds. And what of men in high positions? Do we not see them striving with all their might to reach still higher positions? Their ambition is never satisfied. There is no end to it all because the highest and the best is not to be found in any of these things. If a man cannot be at peace until he has the highest and best, is it surprising that he is not content with inferior and worse things? It is folly and extreme madness always to be longing for things which cannot only never satisfy, but cannot even blunt the appetite. However much you have of such things, you still desire what you have not yet attained. You are always restlessly sighing after what is missing. When the wandering mind is always rushing about in empty effort among the various and deceptive delights of the world, it grows weary and remains dissatisfied. It's like a starving man who thinks that whatever he is stuffing himself with is nothing in comparison with what remains to be eaten. He is always anxiously wanting what he has not got rather than enjoying what he has. For who can have everything? That little which a man obtains by all his effort, he possesses in fear. He does not know what he will lose and when. Thus the perverted will which is aiming for the best and trying to make speed towards that which will fully satisfy it, fails in its endeavour. The wicked, therefore, walk round in this circle, naturally wanting what will satisfy their wants and foolishly thrusting away the means of attaining it. That is of attaining not consumption, but consummation. What a brilliant indictment of humanity that is. You see the tragedy that Bernard spins before you there. Man is made in the image of God. He will naturally love, he will naturally strive after what is good. But because he has fallen and he has moved away from God, he is doomed always to be loving and striving, but always to be focusing on the objects that cannot fulfill that longing and cannot satisfy the lust. Sin for Bernard, building on Augustine, building on Paul, and I have to say, the new perspective on Paul, it may know something about intertestamental Judaism, but it seems to me to miss great tracts of knowledge about the human heart on this one. Sin, the tragedy of sin, is that it is the natural, correct, right instincts in humanity that we cannot escape from being constantly misdirected towards those things which cannot satisfy Brilliant psychological insight, I think, into the nature of sin. 
What is it that is one of the most popular things on the internet today? It's pornography. And yet, it's the very essence of pornography that it can't deliver what it promises. And it simply exacerbates the problem. It doesn't solve it. Bernard of Clairvaux puts his finger on it way back in the 12th century. Sin is love misdirected. The tragedy of humanity is that we will always be seeking satisfaction, but never seeking it from that place that will satisfy. And I think the description there that Bernard gives of people building houses upon houses, how many of us today could put our hands up and say, that isn't me. We all want more, and yet none of this will ever satisfy. I think it's the most brilliant application of Augustine. And for, for that matter, I think Paul's understanding of human nature, uh, an incredibly contemporary. Those who feel, I think, that the medievals have nothing to teach us miss out on so much. Because that is a timeless insight. It's like the pear incident in Augustine's Confessions. We've already recounted this twice this time in places. You know the one where Augustine goes and steals pears from his neighbor's garden. He's got bad pears in his own garden. He just does it because he wants something that his neighbor's got. And once he's stolen them, he throws them away. Sin is a complete self-defeating. <coughs> never satisfies that which it promises to deliver. <clears throat> So, that ends the sermon for today. I'll move back on to lecture mode now. The solution to this tragic absurdity for Bernard, which for the record, I don't think Bernard works out entirely consistently. There are strong semi-Pelagian tendencies in Bernard at points. But the solution is God's gracious activity. I said before, he says, that God is the cause of loving God. I spoke the truth, for he is both the efficient and the final cause. Good Aristotelian terminology there being used for Christian devotion. He himself provides the occasion. He himself creates the longing. He himself fulfills the desire. It's on page 191. So page 188 to 189, that's the bad news. Good news comes on page 191. God, yes, he moves the will. He creates the longing. But he himself is the thing that will fill, fulfill the desire. And he then goes on and analyzes the process of the Christian life in four phases. <clears throat> Again, profound psychology coming through in Bernard a lot of the time. <clears throat> there are four phases of love, as Bernard sees it, where you move progressively towards the purest kind of love. Now remember, we're working in a medieval context where salvation and justification primarily seen in terms of process. Protestantism, these things are status. Justification is a decision on the part of God, it's not a process. In the Middle Ages, Christian life, sanctification and justification are collapsed into each other. And the Christian life is a process of slowly getting closer to God. First phase, man loves God. Oh, sorry, man loves himself for man's sake. There's a basic self-love there for all of us, self-preservation. And sometimes this pans out in a communitarian way. You help your neighbour change the wheel on his car because one of these days you might have a flat battery. You need your neighbour to, you know, lend you his junk piece or something. So there is a love there. The man loves man. He wants to survive. He wants to preserve himself. He wants to love his neighbour because it might be benefit to himself. This leads to a love for God. Man loves God for man's sake. You're out in, in, a, in a fishing boat and a storm whips up. What do you do? 
even if you're professedly an atheist, you quite probably cry out to God for help at that point. Why do you cry out to God? Is it because you love God for God's sake? No. <coughs> you love God for man's sake. You want God to come and help you. Because you love yourself, as you do in phase one, you can move on to phase two. You can love God for your sake as well. You want to borrow jump leads from your neighbour, you want God to help you survive in this storm. Tribulation, Bernard will say, drives man again and again to seek help from God. So tribulations come, and they are the things that, if you like, drive you to seek God. Again, I think we can see subtle hints of Luther here. The work of the law in Luther, the work of God's judgment, drives you to God and ultimately to Christ. Thirdly, man loves God for God's sake. Through the constant tasting of God's help and support and his grace, gradually you move from loving God for your own sake to loving God for who he is. You come to know what a man was anthropomorphic. You come to know what kind of a being God is. And you come to love him because he is that kind of being, not simply because he helped you survive that storm. And fourthly, the final stage, man loves man for God's sake. The final level of sanctification, if you like, is when you love your fellow men and women. Not out of any, um, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or you know, I'm going to do as I would be done by, but you love them because they too are made in the image of God. And you love them because they are God's creatures, because God values them. So if you like, you start with loving yourself, and ultimately as God works in your life, you come to a state of perfection where you love men and women, not because they're men and women, but because they're gods. And Bernard will say this last stage, basically only attainable in heaven, though some of the martyrs achieved it here on earth. This is, the, this is, if you like, it's the goal to which you aim, not the goal which you necessarily expect to attain. And all of this is given, if you look at pages 116 to 118, this is from the treatise on humility and pride, but all of this is given a strong Trinitarian context. And I say one of the things I find weakest about our theology today is often that we don't take time to think about... Uh, God as Trinity. What is it that makes God, God and not Allah? Allah is not a Trinity. Our God is a Trinity. And when Christians talk about God, we're not talking about God in general, small g, we're talking about a specific Christian God. <clears throat> when people say that, oh, of course, Islam and Christianity <clears throat> both have understandings of predestination, I say, yeah, that's true formally. But of course, the Christian understanding of predestination is the predestination of the Trinitarian God. Is fundamentally different. It's a different God involved in doing it. And that is important. And what you'll find in pages 116 to 18, I won't read it all, <clears throat> Bernard talks there about the humbling of the Christian. But he talks about the role of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this. He adopts the Augustinian idea that every external work of God involves all three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They may have different responsibilities ascribed to them, and each act external to God is an act of the whole God and an act of each of the individual persons of the Trinity. I will read you a little bit. Um, it occurs to me that there is a way in which each of these wonderful works can be thought of as the work of one of the persons of the undivided Trinity, if a man such as I sitting in darkness can distinguish the work of persons who work together as one. 
In the first step, the Son is seen at work. In the second, the Holy Spirit. In the third, the Father. Do you want to hear about the work of the Son? If your Lord and Master washes your feet, he says, how much more ought you to wash another's feet? The Master of Truth set his disciples an example of humility, by which he showed them the first step towards truth. Note the work of the Holy Spirit too. Love is diffused in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Love is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives it so that those who have already proceeded to the first step of truth by humility under the discipline of the Son may through their compassion for their neighbours come to the second step under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, hear what is said of the Father. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father is in heaven. And this, the Father will reveal the truth to the sons. And I confess to you, Father, for you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to, to children. You see that those whom the first Son first humbles by word and example, and upon whom the Spirit afterward pours out love, these the Father receives at length in glory. The Son makes us disciples. The paraclete comforts us as friends. The Father raises up as sons. Because not only the Son, but also the Father and the Holy Spirit are truly called truth, it is agreed that one and the same truth, preserving the properties of the persons, works in these three steps. The first teaches us like a master. The second comforts like a friend or brother. The third embraces us as a father does his sons. Love it or hate it. Distinctly Christian. Distinctly Christian understanding of how God deals with people. And my challenge always is, if you hate it, go away and do something better. <laughs> it was a good one, that one. Rarely get any comeback on that. What day was that, Adam? Oh, you're taking up the challenge. It's the, uh, <laughs> 116 to 118. It's actually mainly 116, 117. But the passage, I won't read all, but the passage goes on. Uh, again, more and more Trinitarian stuff. <clears throat> Thus, I've got here, as love characterizes the inner relations of God, it characterizes his external relations, and it constitutes our appropriate response as well. What is Bernard doing? He's taking Augustine, and he's elaborating it a bit and applying it in a pastoral setting, dealing with young men. You know, for all of the huge distance there is between the 12th and the 21st century, there are also analogies as well. If you believe that there is such a structural thing as human nature, we should be able to cross across that divide and see that some of the issues that Bernard addresses will be very similar to issues we address today. <clears throat> and of course, love is picked up with a vengeance as a theme in his sermons on the Song of Songs. And the language, I think, to modern sensibilities, almost too sensual at times. But I'll give you uh, one example, and that's from Sermon 2. It's reprinted in the Bernard Selected Writings. And it's titled simply, The Kiss. Bernard, in this sermon, uses the kiss as a metaphor for the incarnation. Not a metaphor that one often comes across, you know. Luther has the old fire in the iron. Bernard has the kiss. I want to read you a couple of passages from this. <clears throat> 216, page 216. The mouth which kisses signifies the word who assumes human nature. The flesh which is assumed in the recipient of the kiss, the kiss which is a both giver and receiver, is the person which is a both, the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So the kiss, the incarnation, is God kissing humanity. It's a beautiful picture, I think. Well, one will push it too far in a metaphysical direction, obviously. But this idea of God's love for humanity being demonstrated in the incarnation, and the idea of the incarnation as a kiss. God kissing humanity is somewhat beautiful. Uh, and then on 218. If he is not going to go back on what he has said, let him empty himself, humble himself, 
bend low and kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. He's commentating on the Song of Songs here. If the mediator is to be acceptable to both sides, let God, the Son of God, become man. Let him become the Son of Man and make sure of him with the kiss of his mouth. So again, the love of God underlined there by the use of the literary imagery coming from the Song of Songs, the kiss. Just bring that because it seems to me unusual. I'm not going to push this as, you know, you don't want to use this necessarily as the model of incarnation when you're talking to friends about Christ or something. But I think it brings out some of the beauty, uh, some of the beauty of the literary word and the literary service that Bernard does for theology. To think of God's condescension as a lover bending down and kissing his beloved uh, is, I think, a beautiful, beautiful image. Change of pace now. <coughs> Last section of the class. <coughs> In my notes, I put the problem with Abelard. Peter Abelard, one of the great characters of the Middle Ages. We know quite a lot about his early life because he wrote about it. <coughs> a biography with the uh, ominous title, History of Calamities. This was not a man who lived a particularly happy life on the whole. <coughs> Though one could generally say that he pretty much got what he deserved on the whole. Uh, <coughs> Principal autobiographical, biographical points. Born around about 1079 in Le Palais in Brittany, the Frenchman. <coughs> Studied under Roscalin. We met Roscalin last week, one time opponent of Ansel. I mentioned, talk about Anselm earlier on in one of those passages I read, of course there are two Anselms. There's Anselm of Canterbury, who we looked at, and there's Anselm of Leon, who's a less brilliant figure all round. He will come into Abelard's story shortly. <laughs> Studied under Roscalin. Roscalin be a one-time pupil, a uh, one-time opponent of Anselm. Uh, decided that he was more brilliant than his master, set up his own school in 1102 near Paris. Taught there for ten years, logic and dialectic. There is little doubt that Abelard was more brilliant than his master. 1113, went to Leon to study under the other Anselm. Soon decided he was more brilliant than this Anselm. <coughs> Set himself up in competition, lecturing, I think, on the prophet Ezekiel. Then, sometime around about, uh, well, couple in the next couple of years, returns to Paris. Becomes a master at Notre Dame, Notre Dame, and also starts an affair with Heloise. Many books have been written on Abelard and Heloise. It's one of the great love stories of Western literature. <coughs> All ends in tears. 1117, Heloise's uncle, unhappy about the liaison, um, <coughs> not to put too fine a point on it, cuts off Abelard's manhood with a knife or a razor blade or axe or something. Castrates <laughs> Abelard because of what he's been getting up to with his, um, his niece. Uh, Abelard survives goes off to become a monk. <laughs> All say, there's very little, you know, virtue to be gained in becoming a monk once you've been castrated, because the whole point about being a monk is that you're denying some, yourself something that you're capable of. Obviously, that no longer applies to Abelard at this point. But he becomes a monk. <clears throat> He's accused of heresy in 1121, before the Council of Soissons. A couple of ex-pupils of Anselm of Leon would appear to be that there's, you know, in heresy trials, it's never just heresy that's an issue. There are always personalities and political tensions involved. And quite clearly, in this case, not only is Abelard pushing back the envelope theologically, but there are people in the church out to get him, settle the score for Anselm of Leon. A couple of his former pupils take that upon themselves. 
objecting to passages in his Theologia Summiboni, Theology of the Highest Good. He's sentenced as a result of this trial to perpetual confinement, but he's allowed to settle on Maginot-Jean-sur-Seine, where he again becomes a teacher and, of course, attracts many pupils. One of the great things about a guy like Abelard is that he's, you know, he's like fights an ice hockey ring, pulls in the punters, as we'll say. When you're as controversial as Abelard, you're never going to want the pupils because there's always going to be a certain clientele out there that want to study under the dangerous and provocative Master Abelard. <clears throat> so again, gathers many pupils around himself. 1133, he's back in Paris. And it's here that he collides with William Saint-Thierry and Bernard. Bernard meets with him in private <clears throat> to discuss his theology, becomes convinced that this man is a danger and needs to be hounded from the church and starts preaching publicly against him as a danger to the church. <clears throat> Council of Sens, 1140. He is condemned to perpetual silence. The council is stitched up by Bernard, who meets with the relevant parties the night before and fixes the judging. It's a little bit like kind of ice skating at the Olympics. <laughs> and of course, the French are involved in this one as well. <laughs> an Englishman. Uh, you know, people seem very surprised that the French judge was sort of taking backhanders. If you know anything about French politics, it's part and parcel of the way French politics operates. Well, I suppose it's, it's sort of creeping across everywhere these days. But anyway, Bernard stitches it all up at, uh, at the night before. And Abelard is condemned. He appeals to the Pope. The Pope upholds his conviction. He is condemned to perpetual silence. And he spends the remaining years of his life rather pathetically under the protection of Peter the Venerable. At Cluny, of course, Cluny, the monastery we talked about a little bit earlier on, has a reputation for being a little bit on the edge for the liberal reading of the rule of St. Benedict. And he dies uh, April the 21st, 1142. He is one of the most significant thinkers at this point in the Middle Ages. He offers major challenges to orthodoxy <coughs> on a number of points. First of all, his view of the atonement. He offers an account of the atonement that provides the other major paradigm to that of Anselm of Canterbury. Abelard's view of the atonement is to emphasize it as an exemplary atonement. The benefit of the atonement lies in the fact that it is a great moral example. <clears throat> the whole idea of honor, of some kind of transaction taking place on the cross that means that one minute God is dishonored, the next minute he's honored, or as later we have it, one minute he's wrathful, the next minute he's, dis he's not wrathful, is discarded by himself in favor of the idea of that by Abelard, in favor of the idea that the cross is an example. So are you going to ask a question? The movie about Jesus done by Jeremy Sisson, is that a reflection of Abelard? That I don't know, I've not seen the film. Um, I don't know. That reminds me of something I did actually meant to mention. A number of people came up to me after the class last week and said that <coughs> C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, great example of um, the devil ransom theory of atonement. I've only read Prince Caspian and I read it about 25 years ago, so I can't comment, but from the description that was given to me, it does seem that CS, the, the idea of atonement in C.S. Lewis's books uh, is the devil ransom theory. But they're literary products, you know. You, 
one can't necessarily extrapolate from literature to, to uh, systematic theology. <coughs> so Anselm, uh, Abelard, first of all, the atonement. The problem, of course, with stressing the atonement merely as an example is that ultimately it does weaken the whole rationale of the incarnation. Couldn't a human being have done it? great thing about Anselm, if you want to criticize Anselm, criticize him, but the great thing about him is he gives a solid, strong rationale for why God had to become incarnate. On an Abelardian, exemplarist theory of atonement, you don't have that rationale. Socinianism, the precursor of modern Unitarianism, adopts an exemplary understanding of the atonement and sees no need for the divine human mediator. The job can be done quite adequately by a very good man or it could have been done by a very good woman for that matter. But there is no need for God himself to become incarnate. Secondly, the other thing that Anselm, the other thing Anselm does, produces a work, Sic et Non, rather mischievous work. <clears throat> We've been talking about how patristic authority functioned in the Middle Ages, that with somebody like Anselm, you have this uh, use of patristic authorities, though he pushes on to new doctrinal formulations. He's not simply restating what the patristic author says, He's saying new things, but he wants to say what he says, consistent with his understanding of the tradition of the church. What Abelard does is reduce this book, Sic et Non, literally translated, yes and no, thus and not. What is the book? It is a collection of patristic quotations, topically arranged, in the standard fashion, showing how contradictory patristic consensus is. Athanasius says this, but Augustine says that. Ambrose says this, but Ambrosiaster says that. The subtle agenda, of course, is that of undermining confidence in the tradition of the church. <clears throat> Abelard, everything I read about him indicates that he's, he's a hothead. He's a young radical who wants to create a stir. Seek it known is one of the ways he does it. I simply, if you like, one would have to say, pointing out that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. Or if he is wearing clothes, they're perhaps not as covering of his nakedness as they should be. <coughs> and thirdly, I'm oh, sorry, I was going to mention, it also reflects a very broad attitude to tradition. One of the reasons for Sicket known, it undermines confidence in the narrow canon of patristic authors, it actually frees Abelard up to draw in authorities from elsewhere. Abelard is one of those guys who wants to find the Trinity in Plato. He wants to massively expand, if you like, the competence of natural theology, the competence of human reason. And he wants to argue for strong, non-Christian theological precedence for the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not the first to do that, he's certainly not the last. But sick it known, the undermining of the narrow tradition to free him up to use a broader tradition. And thirdly, <clears throat> his Trinitarianism. <clears throat> Oh, is that, my throat always goes this room. Is it a very dry room? Do you have it warm, dry in here? Yeah. Trinitarianism. His Trinitarianism comes very close to modalism. He tends, it appears, to root the distinction of the persons in the, of the Trinity, not so much in ontological eternal relations, but in different powers, different energies, different functions. Therefore, undermining the personal nature of the persons of the Trinity. And of course, if you're going back to someone like Plato to try to find uh, anticipations or adumbrations of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to have to depersonalise it. 
So the real point <coughs> at which he comes a cropper with somebody like uh, William of Santieri or uh, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, Trinitarianism is a real problem. So these three areas, Master Abelard is a mischief maker or a radical free thinker, depending on your perspective. I think he's a mischief maker. But, you know, that's just my own bigoted sort of orthodox perspective on him, I suppose. Um, so Abelard then, <clears throat> I mentioned him, he's opposed by Bernard, because for all that Bernard is a monastic, for all that Bernard is interested in contemplation, he's no theological fool. If you read Bernard, it's quite clear, we might say today, the footnotes are in his head. The contemplative theology that Bernard develops clearly presupposes a good and thorough understanding of Christian orthodoxy. Where he makes his contribution, I think, is in the application of that orthodoxy in a pastoral context. That's where he's good. He's insights into psychology. Um, some of his stuff, one with, with, with only a little anachronism, could say almost, you know, it's got a proto-cancelling stuff, if you like. But he seems interested in the psychology of sin. When he talks about the steps for humility and pride, it's very interesting that he says, how do you um, spot that somebody's proud? Well, first of all, you start to look at the body language. You'll notice that that monk, who's always been so good and faithful, you'll notice that, you know, his eyes are starting to wander. He's sitting in a slightly different way than he normally sits. Um, there's a wonderful description which captures the kind of... Uh, I've got it listed here. We all know this kind of person. It's a wonderful description um, about the person who's become vain. Um, this the vain person finds an occasion to speak. Let us say the subject is literature. He says new things and old. His opinions fly about. His words tumble over one another. He butts in before he is asked. He doesn't answer other people's questions. He asks the questions himself and he answers them. And he cuts off anyone who tries to speak. When the bell now listen, this is for you guys who come up and nobble me when I'm trying to get away at the end of the class. When the when the bell rings for the end of the discussion, even though it has been a long one, he asks for a little more time. Now, I've got him burn, I'll keep my eye on you guys. He asks permission to come back to the stories later, not so as to edify anyone, but so that he can show off his knowledge. He may say something edifying, but that is not his intention. He doesn't care for you to teach or to learn from you what he himself does not know, but that others should know how much he knows. If the subject is religion, at once he's had dreams and visions and he offers them. Then he praises fasting, commends vigils, enthuses above all about prayer. He discusses patience, humility, and all the other virtues at great length, but in utter emptiness. Yet if you were to hear him, you would say that he speaks from the fullness of his heart, or a good man brings forth good things from his good treasure. If the talk turns to lighter things, he is discovered to be even more talkative, because this is something he really knows about. <clears throat> you would say if you heard him that his mouth was a stream of vanity, a river of scurrility, so that he stirs even Solomon grave minds to merriment. And to cut a long story short, and here he quotes Proverbs, when there is much talk, there is boasting. Here you have the fourth step to pride described and named. Avoid the thing, but remember the name. The same warning is appropriate to the fifth step, which I call singularity. Then he talks about people trying to be different. But it's timeless. I think it's timeless. He gets a type of human being there, and he absolutely nails them. That can only come, I think, out of careful observation of pastoral experience. I remember as a PhD student going to endless seminars where some guy would ask a question and he didn't even understand the question. And the reason it was asked was merely to demonstrate how much this person knew rather than to actually get an answer from the, the person teaching the seminar. So it's wonderful stuff. 
Those of you out there skeptical of the Middle Ages, I would say go and get hold of Bernard and read some of his pastoral stuff, and I think you'll see patterns emerging with which you are all too familiar.